0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. Does Bill sound different? Yes, he does sound different. I'm using a new microphone. Uh, Instead of the Blue Yeti, I'm now using the Rode NT-USB Mini. Which is supposedly also good to travel with, um, and I was just kind of curious if, uh, you know, for general recording purposes, if this does the trick. Because this is actually quite a lot more compact than what I was using previously, so big fan of this. Um, not just good for travel. In any case, uh, you were hearing Billy Joel's Pressure Fading Out in the background. This is episode 120 on uh, June 22nd, 2023. And my guest this week is Christian Nimitz. He's the head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And we're talking about the NHS, the UK's healthcare system, and the suggestion on a Financial Times podcast that maybe instead of a doctor, you should see an empathist. Strange. Also in this episode, France disbands violent environmental organization and plastic packaging taxes increase prices on consumer goods. First off, let's start with the story. We have uh, France disbands climate movement over eco-terrorism allegations. Uh, For more on this, we have uh, France 24, uh, which was reporting on this before the ban was officially decided.
1: On a mountain highway in southeast France, halfway between the city of Lyon and Italian city of Turin, 4,000 protesters clashed with 3,000 policemen on Saturday. All of this to protest against the building of a high-speed train link from Lyon to Turin, which includes a 58-kilometer tunnel through the Alps. More than 2,000 police officers were deployed. Given that there were around 4,000 of us, that's almost one police officer for every one or two people. That's where the violence comes in. The group involved is the Uprisings of the Earth, a coalition of several activist associations and part of a wave of radical climate activist groups. Police blamed the coalition for being behind the violent protests in saint sulin in March, where 5,000 protesters clashed with 3,000 police officers over the building of a giant reservoir for storing water, injuring 30 policemen and 200 demonstrators in the process. After repeated protests on multiple sites, the interior minister Darmanin plans to shut down the NGO, accusing them of violence and posing risk to public safety. But uprisings of the earth have stood their ground, claiming on their website that such a movement cannot be torn down. You can't dissolve a movement. You can't dissolve a revolt. We are calling on everyone to join us in this attempt to stifle the movement. Together, we are the uprisings of the earth. The government launched the dissolution of the coalition in March, applying rules previously used to outlaw far-right and Islamist groups. Uprisings of the earth can still appeal the decision, backed by left-wing opposition parties and human rights groups who have denounced the disbandment of activists, which they say are fighting to raise awareness about the ravages of climate change.
0: No cause can justify the especially numerous and violent acts called for and provoked for by this grouping, said Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin. A day earlier, French police arrested 18 members of Les Soulèvements de la Terre, Earth Uprising, across the country. Uh, Ultimately, good news there. Um, You can only go so far in your protest i'm all for people protesting in front of official buildings and um, a slight bit of disruption through noise levels is part of the political process but blocking roads and beating up people is definitely not on the level of acceptable political debate um, and it's good that the french recognize that because ultimately, I mean, the, the climate rules for France already go pretty far and making them even worse is definitely not in the interest of consumers. Uh, 115,000 supporters uh, since 2021. That seems to be the case for Les Soulevements de la Terre. Last weekend, it tried to block the construction of the Lyon-Turin railway tunnel. Uh, you heard that in the France 24 clip there. Um, and it's, it's very interesting how, you know, each time that we have a conversation as we did last week about railways we say well the infrastructure is not far enough you know the infrastructure is just not there we shouldn't take the plane but then also we realize that the infrastructure is not where it should be and what we do is we ramp up the infrastructure so Lyon-Turin is one of those if you try to get from the south of France to the north of Italy it's not always the easiest to get there um and usually you would go by car because a a trip on the train would take quite a while and the same by the way applies to cargo all the all the cargo shipments that we're putting on on wheels lyon turin would solve this problem and despite it definitely not being a cheap uh, project which is ultimately not why the, the, the these different activists are protesting it they're protesting it over the environmental destruction that that um, that comes from building um, this network uh, it ultimately shows you that these people don't want a solution to them it's not about well you know you were you, you were flying earlier that was emitting too much carbon dioxide emissions we will now provide you with an alternative. No, in their scenario, and this is why they like the idea of uh, climate lockdowns, is that you should just stay home. And this is what it is about for them. And they will not rest until you are just staying home. This is why they want to make everything more expensive. This is why uh, they insist on you uh, just uh, ditching complete uh, diets that you might be having. It's not about giving you an alternative. The same reason, by the way, why meat substitutes are still so rare you would think that some of these environmental activists would be rejoicing in the fact that there are synthetic meat alternatives for people to enjoy and would actually probably even you know demand that it should be faster made faster but no actually some of the regulation towards these products, it's coming from the exact same environmentalists because they're not interested in a solution. They just want you to go away. Well, now we're definitely doing away with one of those organizations. In France, they had been deflating car tires, uh, splashed soup or paint on artworks. Um, and, uh, and disbanding it is definitely not going to do an awful lot because, I mean, they're quite imaginative, but it's definitely a sign that the French government is not going to take it all even though some of the opposition are calling it a democratic absurdity. Uh, I do think green politics is a democratic absurdity. <music> but that being said, let's go to the next topic, which is takeaway food to rise in price due to disposable plastic rules. This is according to dutchnews.nl. New rules on plastic packaging come into effect in the Netherlands on July 1st to tackle plastic waste from the takeaway food industry, and that means prices are likely to rise. Um, which is what new.nl had reported early in the week. From next week, cafes, petrol stations, supermarkets and restaurants will no longer be able to sell takeaway food and plastic packaging without charging an additional fee. As an alternative, they can use more environmentally friendly options or ask customers to bring their own pots. Of course, realistically, that's not what consumers are going to do. Uh, And ultimately, uh, this is one of the uh, repercussions of the plastic packaging tax by the European Union, which is sort of going into the direction of direct taxation there uh, by the European Union, which is asking uh, to pay a premium for plastic packaging um, and trying to reduce plastic waste. Uh, Quote, we stimulate reuse where possible, but it has to remain feasible for consumers. End of quote. A spokesman for Dutch market leader Albert Heijn said. Fast food firm McDonald's, which already uses a lot of cardboard packaging, told New.nl it could not accept customers' own cups for a milkshake for hygiene reasons. Instead, the company will charge a 25-cent supplement for a disposable cup or one euro for a reusable one in line with government guidelines Petrol station lobby beta said the rules are being brought in with the best of intentions but are not exactly practical while franz van roy director of snack bar organization pro free said no one will want to walk around with a dirty pot in their bag we back every effort there is to cut environmental damage but this is missing its target So ultimately, it will become more expensive. The taxes are being put on the consumer. Surprise, surprise. Uh, We've been warning about that since before the tax was introduced. Now, on top of the existing cost of living crisis with rising inflation, you will also pay more for uh, no uh, good reason because ultimately most people don't actually switch these things. Are there environmental reasons, economic reasons, to switch away from some of the single-use plastic? packaging and plastic bags and containers maybe but we but in order to know that we have to have an honest conversation about it when we looked at single-use plastic bags for instance that you used to get in supermarkets they use quite a low amount of plastic while the sturdier bags that people are currently using use a lot more of it And very often this happens to you. You go to the supermarket, but you don't have your bags. And what you do is you buy a new sturdy bag and they keep breaking up. And the break-even point between the single-use bag and the bag you've just now purchased will never be reached because by the time that you might break even on the environmental impact of your bag, you will have forgotten it again. And there were studies that showed this. There were Australian studies and Danish studies which showed that those sturdier shopping bags didn't even get to half of the reuse rate it needed in order to break even environmentally with the single-use thin white plastic bag. So this shows you ultimately that a lot of these taxes are revenue-making streams, revenue-raising streams, but they do very little to the overall sustainability. <laughs> But now let's move to the interview of the week. My guest this week is Christian Nimitz, and we had a really cool conversation about the NHS, so take it away. We are here with Christian Niemitz. He's the head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Uh, and Christian, before we discuss uh, the clip uh, that uh, that I've lined up for you today, uh, just give us a bit of a brief, brief background on you uh, and and your work and your general views on the health system that that you have over there in the UK.
2: Yes, uh, well, I'm yeah, I'm uh, the head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a free market think tank, and. Um, yeah, we look at a range of issues. We're trying to uh, push what's known as the Overton window, which which means the range of ideas that are considered permissible, uh, socially permissible at a given time and place. So we don't do, we don't advise politicians. We don't uh, we don't put forward uh, legislative proposals or anything as specific as that. We try to uh, move, affect the climate of opinion uh, by making ideas that are at one stage uh, considered too radical to even discuss, uh, making them more mainstream or at least debatable. And one of those issues in which I've been trying to push the Overton window is uh, health system reform, Uh, simply trying to... uh, increase the awareness of the fact that most developed countries don't have a state-run health uh, system, uh, a state-run health service. That That's a, a fairly, uh, well, it's not unique to Britain, but a, in a large country, at least, it's a fairly unusual arrangement. Uh, most developed countries use mixed systems, uh, either with a state insurer or with multiple competing insurers, and uh, they Have other ways of making sure that those systems are uh, universal, uh, cover everybody. And a lot of those systems just achieve better outcomes across the board than the National Health Service. Uh, And that's um, something that I've been writing quite a bit on, um, not recently, but uh, I published a book on this 2016, Universal Healthcare Without the NHS, ultimately recommending that um, we would be better off if we had a system like in the Netherlands or in Switzerland, uh, meaning a universal private insurance system. Um, but a regulated system, it's, it's not a pure free market system. Uh, I'm not a, a, a free market purist when it comes to healthcare. care. I accept a role for the state. But ideally, that role should just be to ensure ex- access for everyone. And the state shouldn't be involved in the actual running of healthcare. care.
0: Well, not everyone agrees with you on this. And a lot of conversation politically happens in the UK over the funding of the National Health Service and how much money should exactly go into those services. And I have a clip here uh, to play. Uh, This is from the Financial Times um, Political Fix Weekly Podcast. And this is Miranda Green, Deputy Opinion Editor, who's being quizzed about what she thinks should be done on the funding level of the NHS.
3: We do lag rather shamefully behind similar nations. And, of course, that links into all sorts of things like our very poor rate of early cancer diagnosis, for example. And so what is the solution here? Is it more money for capital investment and IT system upgrades? I think it is. I think it's also perhaps about... The workforce mix and a lot of that is about educating all of us as patients to perhaps not automatically expect to see a doctor a gp if we go to our local practice but to accept that we might be guided to a different member of the primary care team there's a lot of buzz these days not just here but also in the us and some other countries about the idea of health coaches and these are people who are not medically trained but they're empathetic people who are able to work with patients, you know, to help them, for example, to stick to a diet. Mm. As we all know, obesity is a massive problem for the NHS, as in many other countries, but it's particularly bad here in, in England. So I think that we do all perhaps have to accept as patients that we're going to have a slightly different relationship possibly with our NHS and that... There is going to be more stratification of patients, so only the very sickest, you know, may see the sort of the most expensive and highest qualified staff. That's, I think, something that we all have to kind of grapple with a bit.
0: So we heard it here. Uh, Miranda Green at the Financial Times thinks you might as actually as well see an empathist when you need a doctor. Um what is this all about? Is is it is it is this the cost-cutting method that uh, the NHS might actually eventually have to resort to?
2: Well, to be honest, I don't know what an empathist is or or, or what such a person does. So I didn't didn't even know that that existed as a job title. I mean, look, um, I, I'm not a clinician. I don't have a view on how exactly healthcare should be delivered or structured. I, I'm, I'm an economist. I would simply say, as in most sectors, uh, we need different models of delivery to try to work out what works and what circumstances and what doesn't. A trial and error process, that's how most of the economy works. And unfortunately, uh, here, Healthcare cannot work in that way. There is nothing wrong in principle with the idea that uh, we should use healthcare resources as sparingly as possible. And that could mean for some routine things um, that a doctor's appointment shouldn't always be the first uh, port of of call. Uh, It's just that I have a problem with the idea that somebody should decide at a ministry, at the Department of Health, okay, this is the way we're going to do it now, and then that the whole country has to adopt this model. What you can get in some of the social insurance systems that I've been writing about, Uh, in Switzerland, for example, they have a model where you can sign up for an an insurance policy where you have to have a telephone um, consultation first before you can physically walk into uh, a surgery and and actually see a doctor. If you sign up for that uh, that kind of plan, uh, you get a premium rebate. So your insurance premium would be um, about 15% or so uh, lower than the premium of somebody who has a standard insurance contract and who can see a GP uh, anytime they want to. And um, I could imagine something like this working for other GP substitutes as well, where a health insurer could say, "Okay, we have unnecessary appointments in in this area and, and that area. People are seeing a doctor when something else, something more low cost, something more some something more routine and simple would probably do the job as well or better." So uh, that so that insurers uh, could come up with an arrangement like that and saying, "Look, if you are happy with seeing." Um, an empathist or whatever it is first and uh some people sign up for that in exchange for premium rebate then that's fine with me then i'd say give this a go and if some people want to take that up then then they will if not then that's uh, then it's not going to fly
0: are the problems of the uk unique is the uk uniquely understaffed on doctors or uniquely sicker than the rest of europe
2: no there's nothing unique about it um but it is the NHS, the, the British system, is at the lower end when it comes to to staffing levels. Um, we have fewer doctors, fewer nurses than most uh, of the of the European um, of the comparable countries. Uh, nothing unique about it, but certainly towards the lower end. Uh, although we're not at the lower end when it comes to total spending uh the the reason that you will always hear for for the nhs's underperformance is uh, its supporters will say well it's just underfunded but overall healthcare spending is in fact uh, above the European average above the oecd average it's not the highest in the world and you can find uh, examples of countries that spend more especially uh, Switzerland Germany France they they do spend uh, something like 12 percent uh, of GDP in in Britain, it, it used to be um quite a bit lower than that historically it's since in in the last two or three years the gap has more or less closed but that's uh historically it used to be true that uh, uh healthcare spending here was at the lower end by the standards of developed countries but uh I mean, that was already Tony Blair had that pledge of closing the gap with the, with the European average and, and did that quite quickly. Uh, it's slowed down in the Cameron years. It's not increased very much uh, in, over, uh, in, over the course of the last decade, but it is um, nonetheless the idea that, that, uh, that underfunding is the problem. That just doesn't stack up. Uh, it, it is quite clearly well above average for developed nations.
0: And listeners will probably hear from your accent that you are a German national uh, yourself. Um, is Germany the uh, the case of a better health system? I mean, Germans are known for their efficiency. Is the German system ultimately what we should be striving for?
2: Um, well, it doesn't have to be that particular system. I normally prefer to talk about social insurance systems more generally. And people can take their pick whether that uh, they, they, there's different... Slightly different versions of that. Uh, There's a system like that in the Netherlands. Different one in Switzerland. Different one in in Belgium. And um, I normally don't talk about... The specifics of the German one, because that's a slightly unusual one uh, of party for historic reasons. It has that split where about 10% of the population have uh, a, a conventional commercial private health insurance and where social insurance is somehow completely separate. Uh, and, and that's a bit of an oddity. And once you you start uh, talking about that, people would just get confused because uh, they, they would then say, well, but isn't that a two-tier system? And, and so I prefer to talk about... Um, a model like in, in the Netherlands, it's in principle similar to, to the German one, but it is a bit more clear-cut. Uh, social insurance means regulated private insurance. It's not that there's a distinction between private and social. It's just everybody has private insurance. Uh, we call it a social insurance system uh, in order to make clear that uh, it is a bit different from conventional private insurance, especially in the sense that there is no risk differentiation. So sick people don't pay more uh, than healthy people. And uh, to make uh, the term social insurance is just used to make that clear. Uh, so yeah, I, I rather refer to that broad type of system rather than point at any one particular country. I sometimes make an exception for, for uh, the Netherlands, uh, partly because their overall spending is almost identical to British levels. So whatever the case may be for, for Switzerland or Germany, where, where they do spend more, and that has uh, specific reasons. It's because a lot of people just choose uh, more expensive options when when they don't, strictly speaking, have to. Uh, but that's a bit harder to explain, so therefore I sometimes uh, prefer to point to the Netherlands spending almost identical Otherwise, other conditions pretty similar to the UK, but they have clearly better outcomes. And um, that is clearly just because they have a different healthcare system. We've been talking about health
0: a lot on this podcast recently, also comparing uh, new health strategies and data across the European Union. In the UK specifically, what strikes me, and this is maybe something you can help our audience with, is that why is the NHS such a delicate political issue? Why are people... I mean, most in most European countries, people will not even know the acronym of their uh, health system. Uh, in the UK, it is across political parties something really untouchable. And ultimately, no matter how you twist and turn the argument, you will always end up with this area, this sector of the NHS, this part needs more funding. It will always get more expensive. Why has the UK politically drew, driven itself into such a dead end on this conversation where there's only really uh one conversation that can be had.
2: I don't really know where that comes from. That uh long predates uh, the time when I moved to Britain. I moved here in 2007. Um it was already just as bad then as it is now and I I've, I've later looked it up in In news archives, uh, I was looking at earlier um, NHS reforms and uh, the way the debate was conducted in earlier decades, and it was definitely already a thing in the 90s and 80s that the NHS was the sacred cow. That's the reason why even the Thatcher government didn't seriously try to do anything about it. Uh, There was very briefly, in the very early 80s, there was some internal memorandum um, from a a quasi think tank which proposed a, a, a private uh, insurance system, and uh, it, it but it never got anywhere. Before it was even discussed in the press, uh, at an internal cabinet meeting, there was already uh, a, a revolt against it, and, and Thatcher herself said, "No we are absolutely not going anywhere near that." So um, it's fair to say that this and this cult around the health service is uh is well over 40 years old uh, when exactly it started i don't know it wasn't there in the in the beginning it was um i've also looked up some some news stories about the time when the nhs was founded and um it it wasn't that popular initially there was not much popular demand for it um, there were the parties uh, and, and not just labor but the party, all all the political parties were around the time we're talking about a universal system improving access uh, but that didn't have to mean that you nationalize everything uh, that would just be... Uh, they would also have talked about improving access to to housing or, or education or, or whatever. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the state has to take over uh, the, the entire housing stock. Uh, it was really... Um, at relatively short notice, uh, the health secretary at the time, um, Bevan, came up with this idea that uh, the only way to do this really is uh, to to nationalise the whole thing, uh, create a unified state-run service. And but but it's not that there was massive popular demand for for that. There was a consensus that everyone should have access to healthcare. But not uh, not calls for nationalisation. In fact, that that was a bit controversial because uh, the independent hospitals were actually quite popular in, uh, in in the 40s, and they just lost that status. Um, completed, they they all got nationalised. So at some point, it just turned into that sacred cow. Um, the The only thing I can say is that in the last two years or so, uh, it's it's changed a little bit. I've seen more debates around it in in the last two years alone or possibly even the last one year, then in all the time since I've been working on the subject, I started around 2015 or so, so about eight years ago. And um yeah, it was for for a while it was a completely outrageous thing to say that there are better systems than the one that we have now. That's no longer the case. You can now, at least in conservative, right-leaning newspapers, you can read this quite regularly. Um, The Times, The the Telegraph or or The Spectator magazine, they they would uh, run articles talking about how the NHS compares unfavourably to social insurance systems, Uh, often a bit vague. It's often not quite clear what, what exact system they would replace it with or how they would want to go about it. But just the argument that the NHS is very far from, far from being the enemy of the world, uh, that it doesn't deserve this cult status, that has become a lot more mainstream. So that, you could say, has entered the range of permissible ideas, it has entered the Overton window. The times, they are changing. And Christian Nemitz, uh
0: following your Twitter account, which, by the way, I do recommend for the audience to follow you on Twitter. It's always very amusing. You come off as a bit of a cynic, but I'm curious whether on the NHS you are ultimately an optimist. And we're going a bit over time here, but I wanted to give you here the final words. Um, are you ultimately an optimist that necessary changes can be made? Or are you saying, well, eventually this system is going to drive itself against the wall and then we're going to have to start from scratch? on uh, health services?
2: No, I don't think that's how it works. Uh, it's not that there is a, an identifiable moment of collapse. It's not going to be uh, like East Germany in 1989, that there's not going to be a, an, an identifiable moment where you where you, you have to say, okay, we really cannot go on like this. What you could get, or what we are increasingly getting, is just increased rationing. Um, things are getting worse. It takes longer and longer to see a doctor or, or any kind of professional um, and we will probably once these new empathists come in, come in there will probably be cues for for those as well um, and you could just have this kind of rationing uh, getting worse and worse it doesn't mean that the system as such gets replaced so it will not be if it happens at all and I don't think it will in, in my lifetime and it's not uh, all that likely but if it does, happen at some stage, it will not be driven by necessity alone. It does require a change in public opinion. More people realizing the system we currently have is suboptimal. It is worse than many comparable systems that also offer universal access. And um, it's starting at the margins, but it would still not be at the stage where, say, a political party could say, could run in a general election by saying, if you vote for us, we're going to replace the NHS with a social insurance system. So uh, we're, we're not there yet. We're, we're at a stage where those ideas can be discussed. It is no longer the taboo it once was. It's now uh, an unpopular but permissible idea. That's huge progress. It was far worse than that when when I started writing about the subject. Uh, So in relative terms, we've made great strides. But where this ultimately goes, who knows? It could be that this is a bit of a one-off, that because the situation is now so bad with over 7 million people on on waiting lists, that that is what makes it more permissible. It could well be that once the absolute worst is over, um, that the old taboos are coming back. Who knows? I'm hoping that, uh, that it goes further than that and that, uh, that the idea of moving beyond what we have now, looking towards alternatives, uh, looking towards better functioning systems, I'm hoping that that will become more of a mainstream idea. The UK is definitely keeping us in suspense. In any case,
0: good luck with your uh, empathists in the future. Christian Niemitz, thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. My pleasure. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. You can follow Christian Niemitz on Twitter at K underscore Niemitz and follow the Institute of Economic Affairs at IEA London. You can also find Christian's book uh, on uh, Amazon, universal health care without the NHS towards a patient-centered health system, all available uh, online. If you just Google it, there's different places where you can buy it. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for listening and you can follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. I've been your host, Bill Woods, and I'll see you Thursday.
1: You have to learn to pace yourself Pressure You're just like everybody